How secure was Joe Biden's garage? Are we in a poly crisis? And is Ron DeSantis an authoritarian? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry. I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity, and the notorious MBD. Michael Brendan Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National U podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Ball and Branch Sheets. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we had a cascade of revelations about new Biden documents. First, the Penn Center closet, which seems shocking enough. Then we got the garage, locked garage, by the way, not not just out on the street, Jim, and subsequent documents also in his residence. This has dominated political news over the last five days or so. What do you make of it? It's been interesting to see Democrats recognizing that this is a metaphorical kick in the crotch to the way they wanted to start the year. Almost everybody in the legal community looked at what Trump had done with the documents at Mar-a-Lago and said, nope, sorry, ipso facto, just on the face of things. That's a violation of the law. Whether it's going to result in criminal charges against former President Trump remains to be seen, but it looked really bad. You could make a case, as President Biden had said on 60 Minutes, about how terribly irresponsible it was. The problem is the guy who was declaring that so terribly irresponsible apparently had done more, you know, more or less the same thing. On on the three martini lunch, I had said he'd done the same thing and somebody gave me grief about it. Okay, there's a difference in volume. Okay, there was a protracted fight between the National Archives and Trump about do you have these papers? There were, you know, questions of whether Trump had accurately answered those questions. And it certainly looks like he did not accurately answer those questions. It's not exactly the same. But What Biden has done certainly isn't good either. And the fact that there's now this drip, drip, drip. Oh, we found some more over here. Oh, we found some more over here. And it's made even worse by the fact that Biden really seems to genuinely believe, well, hey, there was a lock in my garage. Well, that doesn't matter. The presence of the Secret Service at Mar-a-Lago did not make it a secure site for storing classified papers. The presence of Secret Service at Biden's house or the Penn Center office, which I don't think actually had. But that doesn't make it a secure spot for that either. Um, and now Republicans are going to, you know, spike the football against Biden. They've got every right to do that. And I think that they that this does look ludicrously hypocr- you know, hypocritical. And you're going to see lots of people bending over backwards to tie themselves into knots and say, look, that's just Joe being disorganized and forgetful. You know what an absent mind. He's just like Sandy Berger stuffing the, so- the documents in his socks. But while what Trump does, no, no, you got to throw the book at him. And I think most of you know, could you could. Could you convince a jury of this? Maybe. Could you convince, could the prosecutor decide it this way? Yeah. I don't think you're going to be able to convince public opinion of this. And also, by the way, the media now recognizes this stuff was discovered before election day. And now it certainly looks like this was withheld from the public before the midterm elections, which doesn't mean the Biden is being as open and forthcoming and transparent as he keeps insisting he is. So, MBD, you just have this amazing parallel now where you have the former president of the United States has a special counsel investigating his mishandling of classified documents, and the sitting president of the United States has a special counsel investigating his mishandling of classified documents. Yeah, and and when you're a sitting president, you don't – like the last thing you want is a special counsel. Merrick Garland appointed a Republican attorney to do this. 
Although I know lots of people in the comments are saying, oh, he's probably a Republican the way Robert Mueller is. I don't know that that's true. Yeah, this is bad. And, and, and you know, I would push back just a little bit on what Jim says about the difference. I mean, the Trump people did reach out to the archives and then they said, OK, lock everything up and OK, locks put, were put on. Then they reach out again and say, oh, we found some more, including the, the cocktail napkin. And then the raid happens. So, like, you know, you could definitely argue that Trump is, you know, gotten a, is trying to get away with more, is fudging more, or his people are are obfuscating more. But they are just as much in contact with the authorities as the Biden people are. So, yeah, it 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 looks bad for Biden. I mean, I, I do want to say though that this is a this has been a problem for just about every presidency now. I mean, we haven't heard about Barack Obama doing this, but you know, we classify too many documents in our federal government. And a lot of this stuff, we, we don't know what's on them. You know, like there, during the Trump story, there was all this stupid intimations about like, Oh, there's nuclear stuff in the, in the documents at Mar-a-Lago. And well, what does that mean? Because the federal government is stupid enough to classify documents where an FBI agent, you know, just rewrites what they found on Wikipedia about North Korea's nuclear arsenal. And, and I mean that for real. I mean, there's lots of classified documents that when they're eventually released, they're like summations of news reports. But they're classified because they were given to the president. And the fact that, the, that they were given to the president is what makes them super special. We also have no evidence that there was any security breach anywhere in Mar-a-Lago or at Joe Biden's garage. And meanwhile, like in a way, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of pouring cold water on the whole story. And, and, and in this, uh, I'm borrowing a little bit from our friend, Eli Lake. We obsess about the president's mishandling classified documents or their aides mishandling classified documents, but our intelligence community regularly gets hacked by foreign hackers who then steal like giant troves of information about the federal employees. And we don't make as big a deal about that. And I think we should, because those are actual security breaches, whereas this is just, you know, misplacing the laundry. Yeah. So Charlie, are you at all concerned about potential security threats related to these documents or the mishandling of them? You know, it seems it seems in many ways a highly technical Offense. I mean, there's a lot of speculation. Oh, you know, there are Saudis in and out of Mar-a-Lago. Maybe Trump was was uh, selling access to these documents to the Saudis, which is always completely ridiculous and wasn't happening. Nor, you know, Hunter could have, you know, had access obviously to uh, Joe Biden's garage. But this, you know, the idea that he was rifling through these boxes and misusing or mishandling this classified material also seems equally fanciful. I don't. For the record, I think that the relevance of Hunter is that he would be looking through the documents and using the information in them. I think the point is that we classify things to keep them away from people who are reckless. And clearly, Joe Biden did not do that if he put them within reach of his son, who might well have left the garage open or put them in the trash. The question you posed, I think, is an interesting one because having realized this story isn't going away and 
having realized that it damages the case against Trump and having realized that it might hurt Biden, the press has started to downplay the importance of classification per se. We're now starting to see stories saying, when you think about it, really it's America that's at fault. For example, this morning, three headlines popped up in my Apple News feed. ABC News, quote, security violations sound very, very nefarious, but in many cases, they're just accidents. A former Homeland Security official weighs in on the Biden classified document probe. Number two, NPR Politics this morning. The U.S. has an overclassification problem, says one former special counsel. Number three, Washington Post Opinions. It appears that in today's atmosphere of practically everybody and anybody having a clearance, controlling the flow of classified documents has become the real problem, a reader writes in post letters. And of course, this is what happens when the press sees that a Democrat rather than a Republican is in the crosshairs. Now, I'm not sure that those headlines are wrong. And I don't think that even if they are correct, it in any way lets Donald Trump off the hook, because we are talking there about a willful refusal to return the documents. But I do think that we're going to have to decide at some point whether or not it is a problem that classified documents seem repeatedly to be strewn all around the country. <laughs> With the Hillary Clinton server, they were quite literally accessible to anyone who had a modicum of technical knowledge. They were not in a garage. They were online, uh, protected by very little. With Donald Trump, they were in a vault at Mar-a-Lago, probably relatively well protected but still in the hands of somebody who is, let's say, not exactly subtle or reticent. And with Joe Biden, they were in a garage next to a Corvette, which is an indictment of his handling of them, not a defense. There are differences between these cases, but there is not a huge amount of difference in whether or not we should be worried about this tendency. I would like to see a consistent approach to this. I would like to see a debate in which people's conception of the risk that is posed by the leaking or hoarding of classified documents is not contingent upon who it is in the crosshairs at any given point. Because as a layman, I don't know. I suspect we do overclassify. I suspect that most of the items in question in all three of those cases are actually irrelevant. But we cannot have a circumstance in which in one case, the prospect is of potential nuclear secrets being thrown around the world. And in the other case, it's, well, don't worry about that. They're probably just rekindled news reports in somebody's garage. Pick one. And Jim, it's not just the disparity between those two guys. It's the potential disparity between how famous people are treated and how unknown people are treated who very often are prosecuted for this. Now, there's supposed to be aggravating factors that uh, lead to you getting prosecuted for these sort of offenses, but at least there's a perception. You're a former president, you're a sitting president, 
you get a get out of jail for free card for this kind of thing. And that doesn't happen if you're an unknown. Yeah. A couple of days ago in the morning jolt, I kind of walked through these cases going back quite some time. Former CIA director John Deutsch had classified material on his laptop at home. David Petraeus, rather infamously, giving uh, classified information to his mistress slash biographer, I think probably most high profile, Hillary Clinton and her private email server. And also you could go back to the private emails used by Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell when they were secretaries of state, although Powell made the argument that what he was talking, you know, what was in there was such routine stuff that if you really wanted to treat that as some sort of leaked classified information, you just have to shut down the State Department. You know, the problem with saying, oh, we're going to throw the book at Trump or oh, we're going to throw the book at uh, Biden is like, well, a lot of other folks, everybody got, you know, got let off with either a slap on the wrist or less. And there are lots of other lower level, non-famous officials who have gone home with classified information and the government has chosen to throw the book. at them. So I don't want to paraphrase the former president to say when you're famous, they let you do anything. But it really does seem like that if you are a significantly famous enough person, you know, Jim Comey will do a press conference and say, well, it doesn't look like they intended to break the law. Therefore, we're not going to bother with a prosecution. So, MBD, do you have any operating theory on how and why these classified documents ended up in the various places they they were, the Penn Center, the garage, the, the residence, or just shoulder shrug, no idea? I mean, mostly a shoulder shrug. I mean, I think when people are clearing out their offices at the end of an administration, there's probably lots of confusion about what is going where, or, you know, people open, you know, stuff, things in storage units, then Biden gets offered this center at Penn and suddenly, okay, well, let's put some of our materials there to go through eventually. It's the garage, though, that that speaks to like a, a recklessness, like you really don't you had no idea where these class, what box these classified documents were in, if they ended or, up, or in how the much they moved, and you know, and and again, there's there's a couple of them that you know it was reported, I think, in the New York Times, that there were documents that his lawyer found in an envelope marked like personal, right? Okay, that that is a very peculiar thing and a detail that really needs to be investigated, and I really am curious what was on those documents. So yeah, I, but like I said, I think the there's an excess of classification and it's very easy for these things to get lost at the end of an administration. He should have had people clearing them out beforehand. I mean, it's, it's right that his lawyers were doing it. The fact that it was his lawyers who kind of reached out, I think cuts against some of the conspiracy theorizing that somehow this is like Democrats trying to, you know, this is something that, that Tucker Carlson and others have floated recently that. Democrats are trying to use this to push Joe Biden out ahead of 2024. Yeah, you know? he's he's as you pointed out the other day, he's all they got. You know, they're not they're not trying to push him anywhere. I I, I would I would hope so. I mean, then again, people do seriously stupid things. But again, I because it was his lawyers, I don't. I mean, it would be a real insane thing to believe that they were working against him somehow. Yeah. So so Charlie, final thing on this. The, there's been a lot of focus on the timing of the public acknowledgement of this first set of documents. Penn Center discovered a couple of days before the midterms. Obviously, as Jim has, has written, if you r- reveal that right before the midterms, at least causes you a, a bad a news cycle 
or two, which might, you know, make make a difference, a couple thousand votes, a few places that might make a difference in the outcome. What they're saying now is that they they didn't want to publicly reveal it because they feared it would interfere with the uh, investigation that was just starting. Do you do you buy that explanation? No, of course I don't buy that explanation. Who on earth would buy that explanation? They had an election to win. That's a that's a. That's the conclusion of the answer. That's the okay. conclusion of the answer. <laughs> Look, I, I don't think there is necessarily anything nefarious here that is being hidden, but I think, of course, they are controlling the timing of it. Not especially well, given that it's now been a drip, drip, drip. They would probably have been better off if they had just announced it all in one go. Do, do it all, all once a day after the election. Well, perhaps not the day after. That might be too obvious. The Friday after the election. <laughs> and if you look at Joe Biden's pitch to the public, it really had three parts. One was, I'm not Donald Trump. Two was, I'm a moderate. And three was, I'm competent. Now, the first one was somewhat irrelevant during the midterms, although not as irrelevant as we all thought. The second one was in dire straits by the time of the midterms because Joe Biden's approval rating was low, in part because he had not seemed moderate and was blamed by many people for high gas prices and inflation. And the third one was damaged badly by the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but was still in other areas somewhat intact. And this really was a dagger aimed at the heart of the third one. So if you were a sensible strategist, you would delay this as much as you could. So I lied, Jim. I'm going to ask one last question about this. So what have you thought of the media coverage? We've hit on on various ways. It's shifted to accommodate Joe Biden's interests, you know, saying it's now now saying stuff is overclassified and no one can can abide by all the rules around classified material. But I was struck on the, the Sunday shows, both this week and Meet the Press, they were taking this pretty seriously. I mean, the, the tone of, of both of them, the commentary on it was, was this, is, this is a major event that's going to have huge political repercussions, not favorable to Joe Biden's White House. Yeah, well, the first thing is that the overclassification debate has been around for a very long time. It was cited in the 9-11 report or commission report. And it's whether or not things are overclassified is kind of independent of what someone thinks of Trump or what someone thinks of Biden. In other words, long after. Or, or it should be. Yeah. That, that, you know, this. Yeah. I, I think the media is a little irked with Biden. I, I think that, you know, uh, it was Peter Ducey was on Fox News this past Sunday morning, and he made a point that the, the White House press corps, as much as we think they're biased and partisan and lazy and don't ask tough questions of the Biden administration, et cetera, whenever it gets to questions of access and transparency and are you giving us a straight story that's more likely to get the you know uh, the, the the mainstream media a little more irked with uh, democratic office holders and i think it's just straight up obvious here that biden you know biden's team knew he did this back before the midterms and they waited a couple of months before they let anybody know mm-hmm. yeah all right so exit question to you, MBD, in that hilarious statement Biden made in response to Peter Ducey's question, you know, what were you thinking? Documents in your garage. Well, it was they were locked next to my 1967 Corvette, as if that makes it any better. If, you, if you're being honest, you would at least feel a little better about Joe Biden's 
documents being in a garage, if they were locked to, choose one, a Rolls-Royce Phantom, a really hot 1970 Plymouth Barracuda, an equally hot 1978 Trans Am Special Edition, the Back to the Future DeLorean, or a vintage M4 Sherman battle tank? (laughs) A DeLorean, which were originally manufactured in Cork, Ireland, and the manufacturing standards were so poor they had to be rebuilt when they arrived in the United States. Wow. So you don't know if you could even get in those things. All right. So we got a DeLorean. The other options, Charlie, a reminder, a Rolls-Royce, Plymouth Barracuda, Trans Am, or a Sherman battle tank? Well, I, too, will choose the DeLorean, but for different reasons. If it turns out that the documents are either discovered or stolen or even used for nefarious purposes, you can just go back in time (laughs) and fix your mistake. There you go. Jim Garrity. Well, here's a question. Can the people who are allegedly securing the site use the battle tank? that's the case, then yes, the tank. The tank. I go with the tank as well. I know some people who collect vintage armor, and they are all wonderful people. And that was uh, an underrated tank that had a, a huge role in winning World War II. So for me, it's clearly the Sherman battle tank. So we have a, a tie. We have two DeLoreans and two Sherman tanks. With that, it's time to hear from our sponsor this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets, Charlie Cook. Yes, ball and branch sheets. Now, I don't normally get to talk about cold weather because it is rarely cold here in Florida. But the last few days have, in fact, been cold. And I read somewhere that it was colder in South Florida than in Alaska at the weekend. So just think about what chance we had here in North Florida. And of course, when it is cold in that way, You really do appreciate having a great set of sheets to cozy up in at night. We had a brisk winter night. We had bottom branch sheets to protect us, and we were set. And that's because bottom branch sheets are made with 100% organic cotton threads that get softer and cozier with every single wash. I now have personal proof that this works in all different sorts of temperatures and i know as a result that the signature hemmed sheets from ball and branch are a bestseller for a reason ball and branch uses the highest quality threads on earth their sheets are made from slow grown organic cotton for a superior softness and a better night's sleep they feel buttery to the touch and are super breathable so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer months they are loved by millions of sleepers They're so luxurious, in fact, that they are loved by three U.S. presidents and they have over 10,000 raving reviews. They come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes, from twin up to California king. They're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. They're made without toxins. They're free from pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. And they fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so even I am able to make the bed. Best of all, Ball and Branch will give you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. Now, if you want to make the most of your bedtime, hot or cold, with Ball and Branch sheets, all you need to do is head over to ballandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. And use promo code EDITORS15 at checkout. 
If you do that, you'll get 15% off your first set of sheets. Thank you very much, Charlie. So Jim Garrity, it turns out, even if we weren't aware of it, we are in a poly crisis. Sounds both anodyne and threatening at once. And it was the catchphrase or catchword at uh, watchword at uh, Davos, which was uh, quite uh, taken with the notion of a polycrisis. What is a polycrisis and is Davos onto something? Well, Rich, we're used to dealing with one crisis, staying in a committed relationship with another crisis. But a polycrisis is when that crisis wants to hook up with every other crisis again. <laughs> I, I, I'm joking, but in a very strange way, you, you could make an argument that a lot of what we have seen on the global stage over the last few years, they all kind of influence each other and exacerbate the problems of each other. The Russian invasion of Ukraine increased both world food prices and world energy prices. The increase in energy prices caused the really bad inflation we saw last year, probably leading to the possibility of a global recession. The lack of food coming out of the ports in Ukraine has exacerbated food hung you know, hunger and a food crisis around the world. That makes the situation more likely to lead to political instability, people turning to extremists and, and uh movements like that. You, this is not a crazy theory of looking at the world, of, of looking and saying, huh, you know, this problem has a whole bunch of dominoes that fall and have kind of after effects, second category, you know, secondary effects that are sometimes very far from the immediate place of crisis like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. China and the shutdowns, then opening up from the shutdowns, and how is that going to affect the world economy? You can. Th these are all reasonable ways of looking at it. I'm just glad, you know, when the, when the global elites business, political, cultural, all gather in Davos, Switzerland, and they look at the state of the world and say, my goodness, we thought we'd be reading the roaring 2020s. Instead, we have this endless inter-series of worsening global crises. I just hope we can find the global elites who are running things for who's that <laughs> Yeah, so apparently Davos has been, I, I, I don't pay a ton of attention to it as a matter of course, but it's apparently been taken down a, a notch or two. You had fewer heads of state. I guess uh, no heads of state except for the chancellor of Germany, Bill Browder, the, the great anti-Putin activist, said the, the amount they were asking him to pay to attend this year went up from 70000 to 250000 So, MBD, you're not a, a Davos fan. Are you a fan of the notion of polycrisis? <laughs> I'm not a fan of the notion of polycrisis. It seems to be a term that the uh, left-wing economic historian Adam Tooze revived last year to describe the fact that you know we're we've been facing a pandemic and now there's supply shocks with the war in Ukraine and that the pace of change seems to be picking up whereas you know in the 1980s you know everyone would have just blamed late capitalism or something like that now there's this series of problems and i just think this is just fake a fake perception of 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 change. I mean, we we had staggering amount of change 15 years ago during the the giant financial crisis and there were threats every week whether it was going to be you know Icelandic bonds one week or or the reemergence of the Greek drachma that was going to take down the entire global economy. Uh and just like that now we have the same thing where uh you know we worry that Chinese COVID policy is going to deliver an, a totally unsustainable shock that our, our supply lines are just too stretched thin. They're not resilient. And in fact, actually, you know, we've had problems, but 
we've actually been remarkably resilient in the face of unbelievable change and quick crisis and, and, and the way that, you know, Europe has been able to respond to Putin's energy crisis by shifting gears and buying energy from America so quickly, you know, doing things that nobody thought that they could do eight months ago. So, you know, I'm for a view of the world as resilient, right? I mean, I think the fact that we, you know, we are sitting here in 2022 and in the last century plus a few years, you had two world wars, the advent of, of weapons that could destroy the entire planet. And we've made it <laughs> like, you know, we had an unbelievable global depression. We made it through the world is truly like, you know, we, we are not facing any, after facing all that, I'm just a disbeliever in the idea that there are, are challenges that threaten human civilization totally. Right. If we're, if two world wars don't do it, I think little else can. There, there, there you go, Charlie. Davos is more pessimistic and alarmist than MBD. That, uh, that that's that's some some doing, but but take some doing. But you look at just the last couple of years. We, clearly, we're in more of a, a global crisis at the height of the pandemic when you had you know de- deaths piling up all over the place and a major advanced uh, economies partially shut down. And we're in a much better place compared even to that. I don't find it especially surprising that Davos is so pessimistic because elite opinion in recent years has become borderline eschatological. There is on the right a tendency toward nihilism, this claim that all conservative parties around the world have failed, that there's nothing left to preserve. I reject this myself. But it's matched on the left. For a start, one of the articles of faith held by global progressivism is that the world's about to end because of climate change and that it's going to get worse. This far outstrips any joy over the increase in living standards that we've seen, the increase in life expectancy, the rejection of all of those theories of Malthusian holocaust. Over and over again, we've seen improvements, people globally being pulled out of extreme poverty, and instead, we focused on climate change. So it shouldn't really surprise anyone that when you combine that pre-existing fear of climate change with a war in Europe led by a madman, but a madman whose scope is more limited, I think, than is often assumed, you would get this overarching theory of polycrisis. Add a pandemic to it, and well, here we are. I have never liked Davos because I've always found it somewhat embarrassing, and I simply don't resonate at that uh, level of uh, pretension and conference speak. But one of the defenses that people would marshal in favor of Davos and institutions like it was that you had a lot of smart people from different backgrounds, different places, doing different things who would give you their take on the world. But over time, it seems to me that it's homogenized. And although you have people who look different or have different countries stamped in their 
passport. They all started to sound the same and therefore rendered the purpose of coming together to discuss things somewhat moot. So MBD, Jim mentioned the war in Ukraine as something where the, um, uh, the effects have ramified out and, and worsened other bad trends, inflation, whatnot. You wrote last week a long, typically monetary piece about Ukraine and how hawks are kind of convincing themselves once again, based on their own happy talk, that everything's going to turn out fine here and there's sunny uplands awaiting us if we just see this through and you don't think that's the case no i i don't i mean listen some of this will be familiar if if people have been listening for the past year or so but you know ultimately this is becoming uh and and many people in the administration even say this is a proxy war between nato and russia with ukraine doing the fighting and bleeding and I think Ukraine taking on Ukraine as a financial and security dependent is is a massive, massive undertaking, and we haven't really reckoned with the potential costs. I mean, uh, people are saying, "Oh, we've got this bargain where we've spent, you know, a hundred billion dollars and we've crippled Russia," and it's like, "Well, we've also crippled Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine's economy is 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 collapsed, you know, by at least thirty five percent." Russia's economy only has gone down three or five percent, depending on the numbers. Could be set to go down more. And so, even if if at some point soon, Vladimir Putin calls for you know says, "Uncle, I want to get to the negotiating table," the bill for rebuilding Ukraine could reach towards a hundred billion. Uh, sorry, it's already estimated to be seven hundred fifty billion. If the war continues longer, it's going to be larger. And that that amount of reconstruction means forcing down through Ukraine's notoriously money porous institutions five times their GDP in reconstruction. Uh, That is a horrifying prospect. And who's going to come up with that money? Because it doesn't seem like Europe wants to give that much money. And then Ukraine has to build an economic future. How does it do that? It's it can't join the EU. I mean, the EU, existing EU members won't allow that because they'll be afraid of being inundated with Ukrainian migration because the, the the opportunity that you can get in Germany or in Ireland or France is just tremendous compared to Ukraine. Threat, threat will no longer be Polish plumbers. It'll be Ukrainian plumbers. Right. And and then that's a brain drain for Ukraine, which which is something that Poland and Hungary and even Italy has struggled with in the EU. So is this, we have not really totaled up the costs yet. And there's a cost too in the enmity we're building up with Russia long-term. I mean, you have to have a strategic reason for taking out a rival, I think. And I'm not sure we've we've totally thought it through. So, so MBD, this, this is the big problem I have with, with your argument. Even if I stipulate all, all the downsides that, that you set out are, are true, and there, there's a lot to a lot of them, what's at, at at this point, given that we don't have that back, back to the future DeLorean where we can you know, g- go back and, and try to stop the, the war from starting, giving Russia more diplomatic concessions, and there, there wouldn't have been problems going down that route. But w- what, what do we do now? I mean, clearly there, there's a big asymmetry in Russia's favor in terms of 
you know, it doesn't cost much to send send the missile into the the Ukrainian power plant, you know, to destroy it. And it's going to cost a lot to get that power plant up up and running again. And that's multiplied many, many times over the entirety of the the country in all sorts of realms besides just the electricity sector. But what, what but what's our what's our alternative? What what would we what would we do differently at this point? I mean at this point, I mean, if you were it, you would want to judge, okay, where are the United States interests going forward? Are we interested in the war going longer or shorter? I mean, I think the benefits are on the shorter side for for kind of containing those reconstruction costs, containing the danger of, of the war escalating or drawing in more belligerence. I mean, you know, remember, like there were little wars before the first World War II, like the Serbian, Serbian wars and the Serbo-Croat wars that seemed like containable conflicts and then suddenly were the seedbed of, of worldwide conflagration. So I rate that as a risk to avoid. And, and basically, I mean, you, if you're, if we're the ones paying the piper to play the tune, if we say, okay, here's the cap of money that we're going to set for the rest of this year and the cap on weapons for the rest of this year in Ukraine, I mean, that gives Ukrainians the choice then of how they want to begin setting terms it puts the ball in their court to, to do that right now. It's like, we're, we're in a constant tug and forth where Zelensky is going to continue to ask for more and we'll provide more. So that's it. If, if we have a limit, then the Ukrainians decide their limits and we don't know what the, we don't know exactly what the Russian limits are. I mean, they're as what we are seeing is they are digging, beginning to dig deep with these big mobilizations that are going to start hitting the war in the spring. And we, we may see in the spring a huge eruption in casualties on both sides as about, you know, 200,000 new Russians poorly trained pour in against a refreshed 60,000 NATO trained Ukrainian troops. I, I imagine it's going to be a bloodbath. So Jim, I saw a, a good thread the other day from a strategist based at, at some British outfit saying people who are criticizing the the higher grade weaponry we're now giving the Ukrainians are are off base because even if if there were a ceasefire right now, Russia's not going to go away. Russia's going to uh, re- refresh and possibly start a conflict again on on better terms. So Ukraine's going to need the weapons regardless. And so you might as well give it to them now when they still have a potential to regain territory, a potential that might not be there several months from now when, as MBD points out, you know, the, these, these Russian, greater Russian forces will surely be brought to bear. Yeah. The only way you end up in a circumstance where there is not a high probability of eventually the conflict restarting or flaring up in some fashion is either the Russian conquest of Ukraine, in which free Ukraine as it exists no longer you know, just is wiped from the map or becomes a rump state in kind of those eastern territories. Or the second one is that it turns into such a debacle for Russia that you know every leader after Putin looks at that and says, well, we're never doing that again, where this turns into, you know, pick your metaphor, Vietnam, their Afghanistan, our Afghanistan, you know, the sort of thing where you know, like an enormous commitment an enormous loss of blood and treasure for no discernible, you know, real strategic value. I, you made a comment about, you know, wishing we'd had the DeLorean, Rich. And I kind of like, you know, to, to tie a bow on this about 
why one of the reasons Davos is so infuriating. Look, one of the reasons we're in this mess is because Putin chose to take over Crimea and, you know, President Obama and Vice President Biden and most of the leaders of the West, you know, issued sternly worded statements. You shouldn't do that. And Putin just kind of laughed. And we were going to we were going to show oh, here, here come some sanctions, you know, and Putin didn't care. It didn't make any difference to them. We've had a arguably, certainly a decade, maybe a generation of leaders in the West who really, they don't want to take on the hard problems. Let's face it, Russia, you know, Putin in Russia, the rise of China, North Korea, hey, those are hard problems. There aren't any easy solutions. You know, there, there's no way to, you're not likely to take a victory lap on any, of the, on any of those fronts anytime soon. So what was Obama focusing on? We're going to reestablish a relationship with Cuba. We're going to make enough concessions with Iran, and eventually they'll decide to temporarily give up their nuclear ambitions. This We've had a generation of leaders who really wanted to take on the easy problems. You know, let's demonize suburbanites for driving SUVs. Let's tell people, you know, let's get more people to go vegan and eat bugs and stuff like that. Instead of, the, hey, you've got this maniac with a nuclear arsenal over there. That seems like a really big problem to solve. But that's hard. And leaders tendly like to, you know, do things where they can take easy victory laps on. So Charlie Cook, exit question to you, a real broad gauged one. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the trajectory of the world? I am optimistic about the trajectory of the world. MBD. If we can get through the Ukraine war safe. I'm generally optimistic. Actually, you know, one thing that I'll give an example of something that gives me optimism that sounds very small, but AI powered stonemasons bringing robotic technology to construction and to traditional construction techniques that help you build, you know, that can help you build beautiful Georgian buildings, Spanish colonial buildings. That is a future of abundance and cheaper cost of living that we should be desperate to bring about. And I think it's coming online in the next 15, 20 years. And to me, that that could that could be a way of addressing, you know, the so-called Davos cost of living crisis could help with fertility rates. That's something I'm really looking looking to is with uh, great hope. Tim Garrity. Despair is a sin. And I think long term, I'm optimistic, but I think we'll have some really big bumps in the road between now and then. Yeah, I think uh, on the biggest picture overall trajectory of the world, optimistic, I suspect for the same reasons Charlie is and, uh, you know, MBD just cited a, a, a great example. But the a realm of international affairs is uh, I, I'd be pessimistic in, in the short, medium term here because there is a huge potential conflict brewing with China. Obviously, with that, let me pause, do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nashreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads. It's like magic. Your way to dig deeper into our community. If that is something that interests you, you can comment on articles and blog posts. You can get invited to exclusive events with our writers and editors and other conservative figures. And even if that floats your boat, become part of our private Facebook group. So if you haven't signed up already, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So Charlie, it's been a little while since we've discussed a Ron DeSantis 
freak out. So I thought we had to check in on the Ron DeSantis freak out front. And sure enough, we got a freak out going over this alleged takeover of what is it called? The New College of, of Florida, which is not a uh, not, not the name of a school that I would want anyone I, I care about to, to, to go to and is indeed a uh, progressive oriented public college in Florida. And the way these things work, governors get to appoint the members of the, the boards uh, of such institutions. And DeSantis has taken the opportunity to appoint a, a bunch of prominent conservatives headlined by Christopher Rufo and our friend Charles Kessler, the, the editor of the Claremont Review books, who are going to attempt to reor- reorient uh, this institution in fairly short order. And this has created a lot of comparisons to Victor Orban, who allegedly considers the uh, universities in uh, Hungary to be enemies of the state and has attempted hostile takeovers of them or hustled uh, at least one of them out of business. So this supposedly proves that Ron DeSantis is an Orbanist-style figure on the right and indeed is a budding authoritarian. I just don't think that's right. This is a public college. This is a college that is paid for by taxpayers and exists under the auspices of the state government. This is a college that is thereby subordinated to the political process. We're not talking here about a private institution. We're talking here about a public institution to which the governor is allowed to appoint figures of his choosing. Now, we can argue about whether or not DeSantis's people are good, but we can't pretend that this is some intrusion into civil society. It's not. If we are going to elect people and if we're going to give them these powers, then they're going to use those powers and they're going to do so along ideological lines. Second point I would make on this is that I would not have appointed the people that DeSantis did. But I also would not have run New College as it was being run before. So much of the coverage of this has pretended that New College was this bastion of moderate apolitical academic inquiry. But that's not true. That is not how the vast majority of our public institutions, and indeed many of our private institutions, although that's a separate question, are operating today. Most of the people who are upset about this are not going for some sort of open-minded paradise. They don't work for fire. They don't work for the ACLU as it existed at one point. They are not classical liberals. They are people who are irritated that one political ideology has been replaced by another. And I just have no sympathy for that. If you are going to take over the universities and use them as instruments of social change, which the left has done, and which the left did deliberately, this isn't a secret, it's not a conspiracy theory. This was announced in the 1960s. There's a statement, the Port Huron Statement, 
put together by students for a democratic society who said out loud, we need to take over the universities, listed all the reasons, and then they did it. They achieved their goal. If you're going to do that, you cannot complain when people on the other side, the bizarro world students for a democratic society, in bizarro world Port Huron, say, no, you're not. We're going to run this stuff. This is clearly a public issue. This is clearly a political issue. Now, if we were talking about Harvard, if we were talking about the uh, thousands of privately run colleges across the United States, it would be different. I do not want to see the governor of Florida or Texas or California, for that matter, interfering in private education. But of course they're going to interfere in public education. It's paid for by taxpayers. It's created and sustained by the government. Of course you are going to see the shaping of those institutions according to the presuppositions of our elected officials. So I, I, I can't get head up about this. Again, I'm not, I'm not where Ron DeSantis is on a bunch of these issues. I'm also not where New College was before. I just think it is the grown-up thing to do to accept that if you have a public college, that college is under the control of the state. The state is run by the person who won the last election. You're going to see that translated. Yeah, MBD, it seems to me that there, there, there shouldn't be a woke public college or public university in any red state. I, I don't. I don't want uh, the, the governors of these states or the political bodies in these states in, imposing their political agenda via the education system. But I do think it's appropriate for them to assist and assist on on guardrails around a basically kind of consensus style a, a approach to what should be a college education, including you know the return of of Western civilization classes to public colleges and universities. Yeah, that's I mean I find that totally non-controversial when the when the when the college is run by the state. In fact, I, I don't even find it that controversial when when colleges are just in receipt of lots of federally backed student loans to, in in some cases for there to be some strings attached. This is going to be an ongoing thing that enriches colleges and makes them basically grants them these manorial roles in our society. So yeah, I, I fully support what, what DeSantis is doing. It's interesting because they're comparing it to Orban, but it's actually almost the exact opposite of what Victor Orban did, right? Which is what Victor Orban did was he took public funds and then endowed a private, a privately managed foundation to run new schools in new colleges in, in, in Budapest. So basically like the idea was he was basically creating what he hopes to be like a Harvard of, of Hungary. And he was separating it from government control to prevent a future progressive institution from having the power to appoint board members and trustees. So this is just, you know, in Florida, this is just governor DeSantis taking his job seriously. I mean, these are one of the things that DeSantis is genius at is just being active in the parts of state government that sometimes other 
conservative elected officials have tended to ignore or to just let uh, run with sort of a, a benign neglect. And he's taking an active role. And because he is, I mean, the, the, these are considered playpens for progressives, even under conservative governors in many cases. Well, they're not anymore. Good. So uh, Jim Garrity, uh, another case of DeSantis's example of DeSantis' supposed authoritarianism is the so-called don't say gay bill. And there's been some reporting on the left about the what, what the alleged horrors this this law that are already evident, and one of them is that there was a school that removed uh, Tango Makes Three from its library. This is a, a story of two male penguins who are very good friends, let's say, and uh, and have a little uh, a little baby penguin, and it's obviously a, a, a story about gay marriage, and whether this should be in an elementary school library or not, someone needs to make that decision. Some public authority needs to make that decision, public employee, whether it's the principal or whether it's the school board or whether it's the county, you know, that runs the school board or whatever, but someone has to make that decision. And it's it's not uh, out of bounds to, to make the decision. No, you know, our elementary school kids don't need to say see that in, in school or have access to them. If their parents want them to expose them to such material at a, at a young age because they think it's appropriate for them to, to, to learn about homosexuality at a young age, fine. You know, you have all sorts of opportunities. You can buy that book from Amazon, but it's not authoritarian not to have it in a, a library. Yeah, one of the reasons I liked the Florida law, and I wonder if we do a disservice by referring to it by the name that liberals assign to it, is the point that it focused on elementary schools. And, you know, there are all kinds of books in this world that you think might be appropriate for a high schooler, might be appropriate for a mature high schooler, might be appropriate for a middle schooler, right? Different books are written at different grade levels. The kinds of subjects you can discuss, particularly regarding sex and relationships, varies a great deal by age. You're going to have some kids who are going to be more curious about these topics than others. So what seemed like the easiest area and most sensible area for consensus was to say, okay, to high school, we can talk about later on. Let's focus on, ed- on elementary school kids. Let's focus on the youngest kids, kindergartners, first grade to third grade. That seems to be where we could have a very broad cultural consensus that no, anything resembling sexually explicit material really doesn't belong in this. If parents want to make different decisions at home, that's their right, but that's fine. And I'm not the least bit surprised that this, you know, every, how often you see these kinds of stories is, you know, crazy parents are again attacking public schools for books and libraries. And then you see it's a fight about elementary school stuff. Unsurprisingly, parents don't want to have that kind of stuff in an elementary school. I, I look, one of the reasons you see a great deal of topics about, you know, is DeSantis acting like an autocrat or authoritarian? I'm looking over at a headline at irishcentral.com, probably MBD's cousins. The three Florida furors, all yesterday's men, talking about Bolsonaro, DeSantis, and Trump, because they're all pretty much the same, apparently. Yeah, look, there are right now, it is January 2023. There are about four people who have a really good chance of being the next president of the United States Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Donald Trump, and Ron DeSantis. You really have to imagine some wild scenario for somebody else, Gavin Newsom, some other Republican, something like that. Could it happen? Sure. But chances are one of those four people is going to be the next president of the United States. There are a lot of people who like the other three people, and they don't want to see Ron DeSantis become the next president of the United States, so they will grab anything they can 
to make you convinced that, ah, oh, Ron DeSantis is just the worst. Never mind the fact that the other three all have some pretty considerable flaws of their own. So that's that's where we are. Everything Ron DeSantis does from here until Election Day 2024 is going to be treated as the worst thing ever by all of these separate factions who want somebody else to be taking the oath of office on January 20th, 2025. So Charlie Cook, exit question to you in reference to that 2024 race that Jim just mentioned. We are in a, a holding pattern on the Republican side. Not much has happened. Trump announced and didn't do much with it, although I think he has uh, some sort of rally or, or, or event upcoming somewhere uh, sometime soon here. DeSantis and Yunkin aren't doing anything. They have sessions of their legislature to deal with. Nikki Haley might be the first to, to make a move, but that, that hasn't happened yet. So what we see is what we get in this race. It is currently a stasis or DeSantis, Trump, or someone else is, is quietly gaining. Well, I think Trump's launch has been a dud, which doesn't mean his campaign will be. But I think he has some ground to make up. I think DeSantis is quietly gaining still. I think there are a bunch of people out there who are kidding themselves. We'll stick at the 2 3 4% level. Hopefully they won't be too numerous. And then there's going to be somebody who will take off in a way we don't expect. But that hasn't happened yet. So I think we're in stasis. I don't think anything's really changed. Trump announced didn't do anything, probably damaged himself with some of his decisions. As you pointed out yesterday, the only good news Trump has really got in the last few months has come from outside. DeSantis has done nothing to damage his position as the front runner, which was confirmed after his blowout victory in November, and the rest of the field is, at the moment, invisible. MBD, we got a stasis. I agree. I think, and I think the stasis is is partly it's partly a consequence of Ron DeSantis not announcing early, which we all predicted he wouldn't do. We all thought he would wait until at least the legislative session beginning this year is done before announcing. And I think that's you know we're seeing reports that that is what's freezing the Republican race and probably freezing the dynamic where Donald Trump is just sort of has planted his flag and no one feels the need even to rally around it, which, which I think works against Trump in a, in a way it, it erodes his support. I think it won't, he's not going to be able to get energy into his political operation again until he has real opponents that he can begin attacking. So, and, and with everyone else waiting to see what Ron will do, I think we're months away from knowing where the real status of the race is. Yeah, I think the most notable development of this very young cycle is how much either Trump's instincts have atrophied and gotten worse over the last few years, or perhaps it's the absence of longtime advisors, associates, Ivanka, Jared, folks like that, who might have saved him from his own worst instincts. Really, nothing's gone right since the launch. Some of them, like the dinner, you know, the meal with Kanye, tweeting that, you know, this is, we should suspend the constitution. Like all of his worst impulses have come to the fore and there really hasn't been anything indicating that, you know, he's acting like he's still the insurrectionist candidate of summer 2015. And he's not, he's a incumbent president who had a, you know, 
very mixed record, who's already lost to the guy who is currently in the Oval Office. And yes, I know Trump believes he didn't, blah, blah, blah. I don't think uh, Trump's like somebody who doesn't realize where he is or how he stands or how people perceive him anymore. That's it can be a real challenge when you're trying to win a national election. Yeah, I think the answer is stasis. And just as a political observer, this is really unfortunate because this is going to be a fascinating and, well, they're all unpredictable, but I would think a particularly un- unpredictable race. So just on that level, I can't wait for it really to get started in earnest, but there's there's more waiting to come. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity. Great news from the Garrity family. You are officially an uncle. Yes. And boy, let me tell you, I, I've been, I really love being a father. But there's just something about seeing an absolutely adorable baby. I have a new nephew. I will refrain from mentioning the nose for the, to uh, avoid any stress for my brother or sister-in-law. But, you know, they're cooing. They're adorable. They're newborn. We drove up the morning we heard to, uh, to where they're living, visited in the hospital. And then when that baby poops, you just hand it back. You don't have to deal with it at all. It's really the best of both worlds. I absolutely intend to spoil this kid. And I don't know about you. I, I've just felt like everything in the world, as bad, that, that might explain my opti- long-term optimism in the earlier question. Things are going okay when there's a new addition to your family. Awesome. Congratulations to all involved. MBD, less exalted news from your front. You've been listening to the Bee Gees. Yeah, I don't know how this happened exactly. I think YouTube served up some weird cover version. And I don't know. I've just been going through the Bee Gees catalog and they've been getting in my head like an earworm, especially the little pre-chorus to How Deep Is Your Love, where it's just kind of a very beautiful piece of songwriting going through, you know, G major seven, F minor seven, E minor seven before landing at G at the end. And it's just, I don't know. I guess I always thought of them as the uh, the weird disco guys, but now I'm like kind of getting in touch with the sensitive 70s pop music that uh, they they excelled at. All right. Newfound appreciation for the, the Bee Gees. Better late than never. Charlie Cook speaking better late than never. It's better to score 31 points late than, than never when your opponent is sitting at 30 as you uh, uh, experience Saturday night. Yes. <laughs> I mean, what a night. I still can barely believe that that happened. They were down 27 points. They, for those who aren't listening, is the Jacksonville Jaguars. I assume by this point you know what my light items are going to be each week. I think given that the Jaguars have the Kansas City Chiefs on Saturday, it's unlikely next week's light item will be the Jacksonville Jaguars, but who knows? The Jacksonville Jaguars staged the third greatest comeback in playoff history and the fifth greatest comeback in the history of the NFL on Saturday, and I was there. I was pretty disconsolate toward the end of the second quarter. Uh, but somehow they managed to get from being 27 nothing down to winning 31 to 30. And it's one of those things that happens bit by bit. You know, when you're that far down and everyone is assuming you're going to lose, because statistically, of course, you you are all but guaranteed to lose, you start saying, well, if they could just get a stop on this 
drive and then if they could maybe score a touchdown on the next one and then if they could get and then you know and it sort of happened like that until we started to look at each other with four or five minutes to go in the fourth quarter and say are they are they gonna win this game <laughs> and then they did and then they did so they're through to the divisional round this season is just getting more and more bizarre and more and more exciting yeah. congratulations it was amazing and it can be neglected these these type of comebacks they're a defensive triumph as as well you know not obviously you know you're when you're that far under you've had some lapses but to the reason why these comebacks never happen is because you're going to give up some more points inevitably and they gave up three more but you know another touchdown would have been un, uh, insurmountable and they they didn't give it up that's correct. The other thing that changed was that in the first half, Trevor Lawrence was terrible and threw four interceptions. And then the Jags got some pretty bad luck. There was a ridiculous punt debacle where the ball bounced off the helmet of a Jaguars player and then settled in on about the one-yard line. And you know, that led somehow not to a touchdown, but to a field goal. And the the refs really blew a lot of calls against the Jaguars in the first half. But then in the second half, Trevor Lawrence became Tom Brady and in true Jacksonville fashion, I'm sure you guys read about this, celebrated with a visit to Waffle House at about 2 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. took photos with fans and had the big Texan breakfast. Yeah, the other thing to have a, a, a five turnover disparity against you and still win is it's just totally... It's never happened before. I, I think that before Saturday, it was uh, 0-26 was teams who had tried to do that. <laughs> It's it's insane. So congratulations again, and good luck against the Chiefs. So Charlie made a reference to this earlier, to to uh, me saying something yesterday. This is when Charlie and I were on the special National Review Day edition of the Megan Kelly Show, which was a lot of fun and a great honor for us. Two hours, uh, amazingly, or almost two hours, just the two of us with Megan. It was a lot of fun and incredibly generous of her to do and is going to be a regular feature on her show. So if you don't already check out uh, Megan's show, you should for for this reason and for many others. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, My pick is a little piece by Bobby Miller called The Religious Liberty Issue No One Is Talking About, uh, in which he goes into the case of a man named David Lander, who was serving time in Louisiana prison for drug possession and arguably had his religious freedoms traduced by the government while he was in prison. I think Bobby Miller is right to highlight, you know, that the constitution also applies to our prisoners and their protection. They deserve the bill of rights protections as much as anyone. And we have to pay attention, special attention to them. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to pick two because I think they're two sides of the same coin. And if either of you wanted to pick this one, well, you know, tough noogies. So Jack Butler made, you know, the case for Mitch Daniels running for Senate in a corner post and creatively entitled The Case for a Mitch Daniels Indiana Senate Run. I'm a fan of Mitch Daniels. I think you could argue he was one of the most effective Republican governors of the past 20, 25 years. I think what he's done at Purdue is amazing in a world where there's not a lot of good news for conservatives in the world's of higher education. 
Mitch Daniels is also 73 years old. And if you want to have a fresher face, I don't think that's an unreasonable objection. Our colleague Nate Hockman has a terrific interview with Jim Banks, a member of Congress from Indiana, who just announced this morning he's running for that Senate seat. Jim Banks launches GOP Senate bid, quote, this isn't a normal America, unquote, which, by the way, I think would be a particularly resonant theme in our politics over the next two years. So you get both sides of the coin. I think both of these guys make their case very well, and I can see the uh, strength of both arguments. Everyone should read both pieces. All right. There you go. Very, very judicious, Jim. Charlie Cook. Mine is Jim's Morning Child, which is in part about Davos. Davos elites try to save the world while ignoring actual threats. And there's this great little disquisition in there titled why does the davos crowd always act like you're the biggest problem on earth and i know that when conservatives say this people say oh this is a typical conservative thing to say well yeah with conservatives of course we think this one of the reasons we're conservative is that we think this and as jim points out it, it does just seem as if these people live on a different planet and are talking about different things and are pointing fingers at the wrong people and the wrong people are often you so my pick is an MBD corner post on the new MLK statue in Boston. Th- this thing is a debacle on every level. It, it looks like a, a, a phallus. It looks like uh, other lewd things from, from different <laughs> angles. And uh, unless you're told, has zero connection to the, the, the kings. And even if it... it didn't look lewd from certain angles, and even it, if it did have some identifiable connection to the Kings, it's just it's just flat out ugly. It's just it's just terrible. And one of my rules of thumb is that no piece of, of public art is uh, beautiful in America anymore. And this is just stark confirmation of that fact. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and a rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission. Of National Magazine is strictly prohibited. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to Ball and Branch Sheets. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.